Well, good morning. It's, it's no, it makes perfect sense why me and Pierre, Shane, that share the same name, you know, as talented as we are musically. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you. Praying for Chris as well as he is traveling with his family. Thank you for the praise team and y'all's ability to bring us into worship. The youth are now dismissed, going with Jeff, the multi-talented, who is leading us in family and ministry fair and everything else, and now helping us with youth as well today. The youth are dismissed. Well, I want to say I'm excited to be here. We got a very challenging message, and in that challenge, I pray that you are willing to receive it. I know that sometimes when I preach these things that they can be harder to deliver, but in recognition that God is the one who softens hearts. I don't. So I'm praying for you today, and I'm praying for myself, that I deliver it with such compassion and mercy, I guess the blow won't hit that hard, all right? But can we just dive into prayer, ask God to soften our hearts, and get ready for the Word of God? Let us pray together. Dearly Father, we want to say thank you because you are God all by yourself. We desperately need you. We desperately want you. And my prayer is that our hearts are already soft enough to receive the word in which comes from you. I don't have to ask your word to be powerful. It already is. It is already sharper than double-edged sword. It splits bone and marrow. The only issue and only thing we have to pray for is that we're willing to be split. That we're willing to allow your word to divide us so that you can put us back together. I do pray for my heart as well that no fatigue or lack of energy or anything in the way will get in the way of the delivery of your word. God, I just want to say I love you, and I hope that we all are in this service with love for you because that changes our motivation. God, we are excited. I am excited to deliver something that is so powerful, your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't know if some of y'all know this backstory to me. I, for a while, and still kind of am, I was in academia. I enjoy academia. There is a, there is a, a, a I guess you would say some fun to it, to be able to teach and to be in the college atmosphere. So I was an adjunct professor at the College of Biblical Studies teaching classes, but the problem was is that my dad was there before me. Um, so therefore, when you looked at the roster, it said P. Cannings, and so they would often think that was my dad. Um, so the beauty of it is that one time I got a chance to camouflage my way into a class. Why? Because for some reason, people still think I look young. I'm not sure how that goes, but some people believe it. So I walked into class, and I decided, you know what, let me run my experiment. Some of y'all may think I'm a hater, but I did it, and I enjoyed it. I went, I sat down in the class and let everybody just wait for the professor. I was the first one there. I just let them talk. And then I started to hear what I thought I would hear. I started to hear what every student does before they think the professor is even present. They started to talk about the class. And I ain't going to lie. It was ruthless. <laughs> it started like this. Have you seen this syllabus? Have you seen what he expects us to do? Do you see the timelines on this thing? Who does he think he is? Now, the whole time, I'm just sitting there acting like I'm typing on my computer. I'm not even touching a button. I'm like, mm. I know, right? <laughs> Crazy. Then finally, they switched gears. They started talking about the professor. They were like, do you even know him? Is he new here? Are you sure he's supposed to be teaching this class? What do you see? P. Cannings. Who, who is P? What, what is it? Like, they were just going off. 
And I let them do it. I even let class be late. They were just looking around waiting for the professor to step in the door. And I just slowly picked up my laptop, started plugging it in to the projector. And it was like, good evening. I'm P. Cannings, your professor. I find it funny that many of us feel the freedom to talk when we forget what we're really supposed to be doing. I find it funny that when you step into a class that obviously is not your arena, you are the student, that some of us have lost our place. That we, when we forget the presence of the professor, we start to talk a little recklessly. When we forget the purpose in which we're doing what we're doing, we begin to talk like we know exactly what should be happening in the class. When in reality, you're just a student. But some of us have lost our place. We're not on the same page. Some of us have even come to the belief that we can tell the professor what needs to be done. Better yet, some of us have even ventured into saying, while even though we know Jesus is present, even though we know it's not your class, some of us have ventured into saying, have you seen Jesus' syllabus? Have you seen what he requires of me? Have you seen what he wants us to do? Have you seen the fact that he wants me to reign single and celibate? Have you seen the fact that this man thinks that he's going to have it on his timeline? Oh, let me tell you, it's not until Jesus has to pick his laptop up, plug in and start saying, oh, welcome. This is my classroom all along. Some of y'all think you're living in your own classroom. Some of y'all think it's okay to bump your gums until you realize it wasn't your life in the first place. Some of y'all forgot that you signed up for the class to be in the class with the professor to teach the class. Some of y'all think, hey, man, I'm just here for kicks and giggles. And you had to remember you signed up to be there in the first place. The last time I checked is that you had an opportunity to accept the free gift of salvation. Some of us forgot who the professor is when you signed up. In Matthew 16, we're going to find out that somebody lost their pace. They wasn't in the right page with Jesus. That some of us, some of them thought they are, let me say, Peter, better yet, thought that he had the right to change the page on Jesus. And right here in Matthew 16, we're going to get to a point where it says in verse 17, sorry, verse 21, it says this. From the time, that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. I'm going to reflect back a couple verses in a second, but I want to at least lay out the page that we're on. And the only one who could turn the page in the syllabus, if you know that well, is the professor. He's the one that tells you what. This is exactly what we're going to do this semester. And it says, from that time, watch these words, Jesus began to show. Oh, this is important. I'm going to go back to this syllabus illustration real quick, just for a second. After I stood up, I started to go over the syllabus with them. You know why I went over the syllabus with them? Because it wasn't as bad as they made it out to be. They thought it was really going to be like back to back to back. And I was like, no, I spaced these things out for a reason. But also, let me tell you that I didn't even write this syllabus. Your college did. And they were like, oh, well, we're looking forward to a professor. It's too late. <laughs> they tried to change my name with P. Cannings to Professor Cannings. It's a good pleasure to meet you. Get out of here. You failed already. Some of us forgot that God wrote the plan already. His timing is what his timing is. The way he spaces it out is the way he chooses to space it out. The way he chooses to give you information is the time in which he chooses to give you the information. Here's the beauty of the text. It says, from that time. 
If you know anything about where they are historically, they're six months away before he goes to the cross. That means Jesus felt it was necessary to start delivering the message so that they can get prepared for him to go away and ascend into heaven and to die on the cross for their sins. It was the right timing. The first reason why many of us start to argue with Jesus is because we don't like his timing. How many of us have said, it's been too long, I've been in this state too long, my marriage is taking this turn too long, my singleness is taking too long, my promotion is taking too long, when will this health issue go away from me? And God is looking at you saying, I wrote the syllabus, I know exactly how to space it out, I know exactly when to start telling you information. I don't have to tell you when you want me to tell you, I tell you when I think it's necessary for you to know. Because the last time I checked, if I give you too much information, some of us overload if we go for a 45-minute sermon. Some of us are like, yo, that's too much. So therefore, Jesus had a way of what? Temperamentally giving out the information to where you can receive it. On top of that, he only gives you what you need to know. The problem is some of us nosy. Some of us want to know before it's your time, and some of us know it's not your business. Oh, here's a kicker. If it was all your business, then you would be God yourself. If it was everything that you could control, but many of us in the sanctuary have been falling for the trap that if you know more, you can control more. Am I lying? That some of us think if if God would tell me exactly what he's going to do, then I can control the narrative. That means I can control what's going to happen next. If God would just tell me when my husband's going to change, then I would be willing to be more patient. If God would tell me when my singleness would end, then I wouldn't have a problem being celibate. Am I lying? But does that really make you have faith at all if you know the answer? Or are you just willing to wait on God and say, I'll be obedient in the meantime because I'm always waiting on your timing because your timing is better than my timing. But since some of us want to control the timeline, we're going to start saying, God, hey, I need to turn the page before you even get there. That is the most annoying thing as a professor because then they start asking questions about the page they already turned. I'm still explaining the page. And they already, hey, professor, on the next page, no, brother. And some of us are saying, Jesus, I turned the page. And he's like, I haven't even finished explaining this paragraph to you yet. The reason why you tripping, the reason why you impatient is not because of your husband. It's because of you, but you won't even listen to the page. Oh, we haven't gotten any deeper yet because he starts to say from that time, six months until, he started to tell them, hey, I need to give you this process, this timing. I need to tell you that I am here for a reason. But here's the kicker. If he gives them purpose, it should change yours. Okay, this is important. From that time, I'm beginning to show you that I'm the Messiah that is promised. The Messiah you think is going to be here and reign in Jerusalem. You had it all wrong. How do I know that? Go to the book of Acts. They still had it wrong. Even though I'm fixing to tell you that he delivers a very pointed message, they're still going to reinterpret it how they want to hear it. Because they're just human. And we only hear what we want to hear. The word to show them means to make it vividly clear. That means what was not in their purview, I'm going to make the mysterious clear. Okay. So I got you the timing down. Let me give you the message down that the message sometimes to you won't make sense. 
But Jesus is going to try to make it vividly clear. How many times in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, did you hear what? Jesus would say he would tell a message to the people and then turn to his disciples and give them a totally different meaning or the meaning of what he just told the parable about. Why? Because they were supposed to be able to comprehend what he was trying to give that was mysterious to some. The more you grow spiritually is the more you'll be able to take the mystery of God or what you may be not clear about and maybe to make sense. But if you're only stuck in your own purpose, you'll only hear what you want to hear in the first place. So therefore, some of us come to church only wanting to hear what you already wanted in the first place. Therefore, the sermon is judged not on the Word of God. It is judged based on what you wanted the sermon to say. So of course, it's still mysterious to you because you're still trying to figure out what you wanted to say. So if I preach anything opposite of what you came here for, so that means every Sunday we got to do a couple sermon. Then my next book is going to be about couples. And then I'm going to teach you how to cut people out of your life. And the next sermon is going to be about protecting your peace. And then I'm going to have a pack full of church people saying, he preaches every Sunday where my heart is at. No. (laughs) You ain't grown. That's why your heart is in the same spot. I'm sorry, that was rude. (laughs) Had a long weekend. Here it goes. Then he tells you who I'm talking to. He began to show his, capital H, disciples. I know you're like, Peter, you're taking a lot of time on the first five words because every word matters to me in this sermon. His disciples means they were supposed to be possessive pronouns. They were supposed to be people that would understand because they were following him. So therefore, if they were following him, they were supposed to keep following him no matter what he said. Y'all know where I'm going? That means if you're the disciple, guess what you're going to do? You're going to follow him no matter what he says next. You would never step out of the line if you're his disciple, wouldn't you think? Am I wrong? But how many of us will stop going to church if we don't hear the message we want to hear? So therefore, are you really a disciple or only you a tickler? People just want to be tickled. They want the message to hit them where they are and what they want and what they receive, not realizing that God has a message for them independently already. However, because some people want to be tickled and they don't necessarily want a message, they're not a disciple at all. Disciple means I will follow you and your teaching wherever you go. We're going to find out that one of these disciples had a different plan. And this plan was hilarious, by the way. He keeps going. He says, I might go to a different place. Now, this is important because he says he must go to Jerusalem. And I just want to stop here because Jerusalem was a pointed place. Why did he get so specific? Because they were going to head there. And when they were heading there, guess what they could do? Prepare for what was going to happen when they got there. You're like, why is this important, Pierre? I'm going to explain it to you. If I tell you where I'm going, then you can start to prepare your heart so the destination won't throw you off. Plus, they thought he was going to rule in Jerusalem, so I have to now reacquaint your heart from your perceived notion. So two things have to happen when I give you the address. One, you have to go there with me. B, when you go there with me, guess what? You can prepare your heart on the journey. Because if not, you'll get distracted with the palm leaves that they're laying at my feet. Oh, y'all, you see. Some of us are distracted with the journey, even though the journey seems contradictory to the message. This hopefully makes sense. Let's say you're in the dating period. It's going great. Y'all still talking about your favorite colors. Everybody's happy. 
You're on the long phone calls. He's all attentive and everything, brings you flowers for no reason. This man lights candles. You haven't even stepped in the house yet. It smells good. Y'all just got married in your honeymoon phase. This man rubbing your back for no reason. Yes, that kind of marriage. But if the journey is 50 years, 70 years, then you don't get distracted with the honeymoon. You just know that's a part of your journey. So you'll allow Jesus to teach you while you're on your journey, knowing that the destination couldn't look anything like the first four months or two weeks for some of us. Depending how long that honeymoon period lasts, some of us are a little more confrontational. But guess what would happen is that because some of us get distracted when they scream out Hosanna, Hosanna, and they're laying out palm branches while he's riding on a donkey that's never been ridden, and everybody's like, this is exactly what I was talking about. I was supposed to be rich in Christianity. I want me to be tickled. Pierre better preach that message and make it funny too. So we get distracted not realizing that the next part of this message contradicts the palm leaves. So ladies and gentlemen, I got news for you that sometimes Christianity is not what you expect, even if you're going to a destination where you believe you're supposed to go to. Sometimes many of us in the sanctuary are distracted with the journey, not realizing the destination. So therefore, we get more caught up in the trials that are coming, not realizing that the destination will lead you to heavenly places. Because he had to go on palm trees like it was prophesied. You got to know where I'm going. Therefore, he is fulfilling prophecy while the palm leaves go down. And when he gets to Jerusalem, that also had to fulfill prophecy because he had to die in that place. So Jesus is telling him, I got to go here. You're distracted, though, and you will be. See, Jesus has a purpose. Some of us just think that's the final destination. Like when singles get married, they think that's the final destination. That's why many singles relax. They don't realize that's just a stop in the final destination. People don't realize that your job is not your purpose. That is a place where you can show the glory and the majesty of God. So that when people see you, they see Jesus. But if you forget your final destination, you're going to start going to that job thinking that is your God because that was your purpose in the first place. See, don't ever get distracted with the palm leaves because right after here, he's fixing to tell you something. He's saying, I'm going to Jerusalem, watch this, and suffer. Now let me tell you the content. I gave you the place. I gave you the people. I gave you the timeline. Now give me, let me give you the content. This content on this page is critical because it changes what they believe because many of them had a false belief. I'm going to prove it to you that Peter was riding on a high horse at this point thinking, I know enough because I'm fixing to be your rock. So therefore, Peter is going to get a misinterpretation of what Jesus is fixing to do. He lets him know, I'm fixing to suffer. Ladies and gentlemen, this is probably one of the cleanest messages I can give you about Christianity. Christianity is not about your comfort. Christianity may require your suffering, but they, some of us, no offense, that's why prosperity doctrine took a mighty leap. That's why people come to church, they want to hear how rich they will be. That's why people, when they hear the messages about how life will get better the moment you accept Jesus, they flock to the churches that make you feel comfortable. And I'm telling you, that ain't the message of Christianity. Jesus says that you will suffer, that the road is narrow. It's not easy. And that's why church attendance goes up and down based on people's feelings because they're waiting on the suffering to stop. Then they'll believe in Jesus again. And I'm like, wait a second, husbands. You're not supposed to love your wife when it's good. You love her when you're suffering too. But if you don't learn how to do it with Jesus, you sure ain't going to do it in your marriage. 
If you don't learn that you can't do it on your job, that's why you go from job to job to job saying this, this application is better, this pay is better, only for you to realize it was all about you and the lack of suffering you were able to do in the first place. I'm not going to tickle you today, ladies and gentlemen. I told you I would try to soften the blow as much as I can, but at the end of the day, some of us ain't, no, back up. Some of us are built for it. We just don't want to do it because Jesus built you for the suffering. The Holy Spirit indwells you for the suffering. He gives you peace in the midst of your suffering. He gives you joy in the midst of your suffering. He said it is what? Count it all joy that you do suffer. So therefore, if suffering was not a part of the equation, he wouldn't have built you for it. Some of us don't, don't like it. And guess what? The disciples didn't either. He starts to tell them who's going to do it. He gives them the plan about how they're going to make him suffer. He tells them everything you would think they would need to know so they can be prepared for the destination. He says, suffer many things and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. This just let me know Peter stopped reading the page with Jesus. This is when it gets obviously. Obviously, this man would stop listening. Like He would just like, mm. you said Jerusalem? And that's when he stopped. <laughs> Peter was just... Peter was like me when you're in an argument, but you're only picking out two words you need to hear so you can think you're on something. I'm good at that, by the way. I had to stop. Peter stopped listening. Because if he would have listened, he would have heard, I will be raised in the third day. So it wasn't the end of Jesus at all. But this man had some audacity. This man was different. He tells them the good news. Peter skips right by it. I told you I was an adjunct, so I got a couple times in person where they talked about me. Then I went online. I hate teaching online. For those who like online classes, that's on you. You're a unique breed. I hate online classes. I hate teaching them. You're basically a glorified grader. No interaction. You just read what they write. But you know the funny thing about online is that online you're really... You're self-teaching, meaning you read the prompt, you write the paper. You read the book, you write the paper. You read what you need to read, you do what you got to do. Nobody's in front of you. I don't have to, I can barely answer your question unless you feel like sending an email. Most people are too lazy and I'm too lazy. I didn't want to hear it. You're good. If you feel like you're going to pass the class with that junk, go ahead. I'm joking. That's not, that's really bad. I love, I loved it. I enjoy it. I interacted. I, we had a 24-hour response period, so I did respond. Now, but if you don't read the prompt, I could tell. Now, just let me just lay this out for you. The prompt is a paragraph, meaning it tells you the content of your paper. If you read the book, guess what's going to happen? You're going to write what you read in a very organized fashion according to the prompt. But if you don't read the prompt, the grader's going to know because the prompt was written by the professor. So if, you, if the prompt says, tell me why Peter is fixing to do something dumb. And your paper starts out with, one day I was crossing the street. <laughs> Bruh, you didn't read the prompt. And that's exactly what happens, that some of us don't read the prompt. We just like to respond to Jesus. Let me explain. Some of us are lifting up the same prayer request that Jesus already answered. Am I lying? Sometimes the answer was no, like five months ago. <laughs> but you ain't read the prompt yet. You came to church, heard sermon after sermon about the, no, no, I'm supposed to be single right now. This is my content period. you like, no, Jesus, the next man going to be my husband. And you keep dating him. 
And he'd be like, why do I keep breaking up with every man every month? I'm like, maybe the answer was no five months ago, but you don't want to read no prompt. Why you keep skipping churches? That ain't the church. That was you. But you don't want to read that prompt. That prompt says, tell me why you keep leaving churches. <laughs> and then you over here writing about the pastor. The pastor don't wear the right suits, you know what I'm saying? It's the wrong prompt. And Peter read the whole thing wrong. Watch what happens. This man, Peter, <laughs> I'm telling y'all, Peter is different. Peter took him aside. Now, here's the thing about me. I'm very, I'm, look, I'm not confrontational first and foremost. So this is hard for me to imagine. You've seen, now watch how much Peter has seen at this point. He's seen miracles. Like, miracle miracles. Like, unexplainable miracles. You would think after you saw that, you wouldn't question the miracle maker. Better yet, if you look at the tense of the verb, this man had the audacity to literally take him to himself. So they were in a group. Let me lay out the, look how, look, Peter is dumb. Look. <laughs> Peter, less, Peter said to Jesus, let me talk to you for a second. <laughs> look, man, I don't know who Peter was, but that man had to, when he stopped out that dude's ear, that's exactly who Peter is. Peter's impulsive. He don't think much. But then I'm like, I know we all going to clown Peter for the next point when we start talking about the wrong book that he was in. I get it. But how many of us are that dumb too? In including Pierre Kennings. That there's days when I'm telling God, let me talk to you for a second. I know what you told me you was going to do. I know you told me that, that this would happen. I know you told me that a healthy church takes time, but come on, God. We really going to have people show up at 1145 every Sunday? <laughs> I'm joking, but I'm serious. <laughs> uh, and we, how many of us have taken God to the side and started to counsel God? I'm, Peter ain't unique. He just, he was just physically dumb with it. What I mean is he had a physical opportunity to do it. But then we look at the scripture when it talks about Romans eleven thirty three 33, says, who can give God counsel? And how many of you have offered God counsel about your life? And took God to the side talking about God, I look, man. Let me, let me talk to you one-on-one. -on -one. You must be confused with the other disciples. Let me have your individual attention. <laughs> They's dumb. I'm your guy. <laughs> I told you, man, there's no way not to find this story funny. It said he took him to himself. <laughs> Remember, Jesus was giving the message to everybody. Like, Jesus was telling everybody, hey, man, I'm fixing this up. Peter was like, Pause that for a second. Come on, guys. <laughs> but it gets worse. You ever seen a situation where you're like, there's no way you're going to put your foot in your mouth twice? You're not going to kick yourself twice. Then it says the next Greek word, which you should all be confused with, and I know you should be into this story because some of y'all like loving hip-hop and all these other things. You should be into this. It says Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. <laughs> but let me define what rebuke means. Because then you can be like, there's no possible way. There's no possible way you thought you was going to 
take the miracle worker, hear me out, and then tell him, watch the definition with me, to express your disapproval. To reprove him means to correct. Look how dumb this gets. Speak seriously and watch these words, warn so that you can prevent the action to take place. Guys, my man Peter took Jesus and told him, let me warn you to stop you from dying on the cross. But then how many of us have said, God, I know that this suffering is what you're talking about. But let me warn you how to fix my life. Not realizing that the gospel was going to fix your life the whole time. But because you were too caught up in the temporal reward of your Christianity, you didn't even see the eternal destination. And because you weren't listening and you were on the wrong page the whole time, your behind thought you could fix the, per- the temporary conversation for the permanent purpose. That some of us have said, Jesus, let me fix you, miracle worker. I have saw the fact that you've made sure I never without, went without. I have saw the fact that I didn't have no money, but somehow you made bread. I saw the fact that you fed 5,000. I saw the fact that I was broke, but you made a way. I saw you fix my marriage, but let me take you aside for a second and tell you how to fix my life again. You know how that shows the most? It's not the audacity to pull Jesus to the side. It's the audacity not to be content with your life. It's going to make sense. Is that some of us are so malcontent, we'll be more caught up into what we don't have. So therefore, we question God on what we should have. Peter was, he may have been dumb, but he wasn't alone. One thing I'll point out that's not in Scripture, i got to be careful, this is my opinion. Yeah, yeah, okay, Peter's the dumb one that took him to the side, but you notice no disciples interjected? No disciples said, hey, bro, no, don't do, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't. <laughs> I always wondered that, and I always wonder why, but then I go up. And watch what happens when Jesus was talking to them. And they said, who do you people say that I am? Verse 13. And they said, Some say John the Baptist, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, and the one of the prophet. He said to him, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered pretty much for all of them, if you believe it. He says, the son of the living God. I am confessing that you are God. So this not like Peter pulled him aside on accident or erroneously. Peter knew he was talking to the son of the living God. Peter knew what that this was a Messiah promised. And still thought he can question him. So I guess the question is, the reason why many of us question God is because we forgot who we're questioning. The reason why some of us really believe that we can provide counsel to Jesus is because you forgot who you were counseling. Some of us forgot who we worship. So therefore, we think we can tell him what to do. Not realizing that if he works all things out for his good, he's going to work it out for you too. But because some of us think we forgot who we told him he was, we will what? Tell God and warn him about the actions that are going to take place. Here's the foolish thing about warning somebody about future actions when you don't know the future. 
you have to be dumb to do so. Hear me out. If you know he knows the future, but watch what I'm fixing to say, and he was predestined before time to be present to be the Messiah, then you have to be foolish to warn him about the future you don't even know about. And you're like, well, Pierre, make that make sense for me. I will. Who's to say your marriage won't be fixed in the future? Because God is in total control of your husband and your wife. So instead of you giving up hope in your marriage, talking about we's on the fritz and we on the end, you should be saying, God, since you know the future, I won't be quiet in my present. I won't question you about why I'm going through it because I know you're still in control of my future. And since I don't know the future, I dare not pull you to the side and warn you about something I don't even know about. Why in the world do you think you can warn God about something you have no knowledge of? But you know why we think we have knowledge of? It's because we have, we let experiences be our God more than a God who breaks your experiences. We say, I know what happened last time, therefore it's going to happen what? Again, somebody broke my heart last time, they're going to, this new guy or this new woman is going to break it what? Again, this church was tripping last time, so this new church is going to do it what? Again, and we let experiences be the teacher and make them our God. Therefore, we rebuke Jesus because of our experiences. How foolish do we have to be to question a God who can break chains and break holds and say, God, you can't break this one. I wonder how many of us, if I stopped the sermon right now and said, how many of us need to give up telling God what to do? How many of us wasted, not wasted, how many of us have requested of God things that we have not let go of? It's not that God says continue, pray fervently and continually. That's different. You're allowed that privilege, pray for it. But I wonder how many of us are praying about things that we know God has or we haven't let go of. Let me move on. It gets worse because Peter's not getting it. And he said, God, watch these words. <laughs> I'm sorry, y'all, this... There's no way you can't laugh at some of this stuff. This man said, God forbid. This man put God's name on it to the solid. <laughs> That's like going to God and say, I swear to God. He's like, I'm right here. <laughs> How you gonna swear to me? I'm, I'm the God you're swearing by. What, what are you doing? But you know what he really meant? You know what it means? He says, God have mercy on you. That's what it means. This man literally, Peter literally told Jesus, may God have mercy on you for your plan. <laughs> what? How bold do you have to be to tell God, the, the son of the living God, to have mercy on his own son, who is the God, the triune God, to have mercy on himself? Jesus, have mercy on yourself. <laughs> I'm sorry, y'all, but let me tell you something, something honest and truthful. No offense. That's how ignorant we sound when we question God. We're telling God so much of our plan. We're telling God, have mercy on the fact that you have one. Like, you ever done that? Like, well, I don't know why I married them. God, have mercy on you for this husband, this man that you gave me, this woman that you gave me. And I'm looking at you like, no, may God have mercy on you. Because right now, you're sinning already. Because why would you ever think to question the plan of God? 
even though some of us made our own plans and now we blame God for them, we'll leave that all out. <laughs> Everybody's like, hmm, uh, no, it's all God's fault. <laughs> I thought about what you said, still God's fault. <laughs> but ain't we guilty a little? We, we, we make decisions, know we marrying a non-Christian, then get mad when the man don't want to come to church. Tell him, I don't know why he don't want to come. He promised me when we was together, he was going to turn his life to Jesus. Okay. He also promised he was going to provide. All right, moving on. Um, he said, God forbid it, Lord. <laughs> Brother, with the exclamation mark. Like, this is mean. This, this dude is going in. He says, this shall never happen to you. I am now telling you that I am forbidding it. I will stop it myself. So you're going to tell me what? Peter, after this next part, he gets it, and I'm going to foreshadow a little bit. Why in the world do you think Peter pulled out his sword? Because he meant every word of what he said. He said, God forbid it. He was like, show enough. <laughs> you got you to gotta give him credit for his follow through. <laughs> hey. A thug's a thug. He said, pull up. He pulled up. <laughs> I foreshadowed a little bit. We'll get there next. But then, you ever seen when a mom says, period? Or, no offense, ladies, I've heard you say it. I don't want to do the hand motions because it's not meant for me. <laughs> but it's like, thank you. I'm, I'm going to let you do it, but they can't see you, so I have to do this. But my masculinity will remain intact. <laughs> period. Now, ladies, I've learned a couple things with that period word. There's a couple connotations to this. One, it means you just finish your story, even though you're going to keep going. <laughs> so it's really a comma, but who's counting, okay? <laughs> Fellas, am I lying? <laughs> they be saying period and know the next sentence is coming right after that. And I was like, period. And then, no, that's not a period. <laughs> <laughs> That's a comma. <laughs> Better yet, a semicolon. Something's wrong. Sinister stinks. Our period means that I'm now done with the conversation. Ladies, am I correct? Okay. So if y'all go, period, that means that he can, he can try to continue the conversation, but what you're telling him is that I'm not continuing the conversation. You put a period on the conversation, even though you continue with all your body language and eye rolling and everything else. Moving on. Jesus, he didn't go like this, but he did with his words. Let me tell you something about the syllabus real quick. I'll be fast. You know what else is on the syllabus? Deadlines. And you can't break them. You know what else is cool about online classes and deadlines? Is that the computer then registers your paper, no matter if you tell to turn it in at 1201, 1200.01. That computer says, it's late. So they would come and e send me an email like, Professor, look at the timestamp. I was only 35 seconds late. And I was like, that's crazy. <laughs> Period. <laughs> Jesus turns to Peter and says, we done. 
you've said enough. I'm surprised Jesus let Peter go that long. Because look what Jesus says next. Look, I've seen stern responses from Jesus. He called brood vipers. He went in. He has known. He's flipped tables. This is a Jesus who's going to tell you the truth. He ain't going to hide it. So therefore, no offense, sometimes we keep saying things like this. I feel distant from God. Maybe God's just telling you the truth about yourself. Because sometimes you're fixing to get this work. And watch what happens. But he turned. Oh, my gosh. That means Jesus wasn't even looking at the man when he was talking. I'm not making this up, y'all. Peter was what? Pulling Jesus to the side. So I want you to envision this. Peter, picture Peter walking and pushing Jesus away from the disciples. Jesus ain't even looking at the man while he speaks foolishness. Then all of a sudden, he let him get close to finish. And he was like, you're done. Oh, that's scary. Especially for me. Because I wonder how many of us got in the habit of talking back to Jesus. Thinking this is a conversation and you didn't realize he fixed to put a period on it. Watch him put a period and then watch the end of this conversation and tell me Jesus wasn't done. Some of us have heard this passage before. Get behind me, Satan. Fam, there's one thing I don't want to be called in my life by Jesus. And that is the literal op. This man just called him the op. (laughs) How am I your disciple and the op at the same time? Only young people know op. Op op means opposition. Pastor Candice is asking again. (laughs) (laughs) He thought he was sick this time. He tried not to look. He tried to do it sideways. He's like, (laughs) I got to speed up, y'all. This man said, get behind. So that means we're walking. You don't even belong by my side. So he turned, finally gave him what he was asking for, but it wasn't what he was asking for. He turned and gave that man the truth. He says, you don't even belong standing next to me. The same way I treated Satan in Luke chapter 4 is the same way I'm fixing to treat you. I don't ever want to be in a place where Jesus says, you don't belong right now where you think you belong. You're going to have to go where Satan belongs. You're the op at this point. And you're like, Pierre, how could I ever become the op? Start presenting plans to God that are outside of his purpose. Oh, keep doing it. Keep telling God I want to keep having sex and tell me sooner or later, God's going to be like, hey, man, that's, that's, that's not my plan. That's not my purpose. I told you what my purpose was for your singleness. You keep presenting plans that are outside of my purpose. I know what I came to do. I know I came to die. It's been prophesied before time. Me and the Trinity, we knew this was going to happen. It was predestined for you, man. And now you're going to come tell me what you're going to do? And then you're like, Pierre, I would never do such a thing. How many of us keep telling God what you're going to do with your life? How many of us keep having plans for our life that God has not ordained or even been a part of your planning process? How many of us are interjecting people and things and jobs and placements and what you're going to do and how you're going to do it? And God is looking at you like, yo, that is even that is outside of my scripture. You can't. This is my weirdest thing. You can't expect righteousness from an unrighteous plan. And that's what I struggle with when I go into counseling is some of us will bring unrighteousness and then they want the righteous marriage. And I'm like, you can't bring in and live unrighteous and like, hey, God, bless the marriage. And I'm like, no, 
That's the bad plan. I'm not saying you can't fix the plan. I'm just saying don't keep the plan and expect God to bless the plan. Get behind me, Satan. But then why Satan? Because you are now speaking against the very thing God said we said we were going to do. But on top of that, you are now functioning under the influence of Satan. How do I know that? Go back to Luke 4. So Luke 4 says what? Satan tried to get Jesus out of the plan of God. Why? He was fasting. He came to tempt him. Peter is now saying, hey, I heard the plan. I'm now coming behind the plan. I'm going to do something different than what your plan says. Therefore, you have to be under the influence of Satan or you have to be what? In the direction of Satan. So even if you're not Satan yourself, you are still functioning like him because you're doing the very practice of sin. If you look at the word get behind, it means go away. Sometimes I wonder if we blame the distance we have with God on the fact that God is telling you, 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 don't, you can't be here. You can't be in my presence bringing sin every single day. Now, I'm gracious. You're always willing to be in my presence. I want you here, but you can't bring a sinful sacrifice talking about let's go to work together. No, they don't go together. Light and darkness don't mix. Oil and water don't mix. And one sooner or later, we're going to stop mixing Jesus with sin. And then we get mad at church when they call your sin out. I'm like, fam, if you're mad about the sin being out in front of your face, that means you might not necessarily know who Jesus is well. Well, no, church, we've got to make you feel happy. Don't preach sermons and talk about hard issues. Not at all. But let's get deeper, and i got to finish. It was Peter's attempt to turn Jesus aside from his divine assignment. That's what made him like Satan. But then watch the irony, my, my ladies and my gentlemen. Watch what he says next, and then I'll be quick. He says, you are a stumbling block to me. But watch the commentary. If you ever read one, everybody's starting to pick up on this. Let's go right back, really, really quickly. When, he, when, when Simon Peter answered in verse 16, Jesus responds to Peter by him saying, you're the son of the living God. He says, watch, he gets his full name in that joker. He says, he says blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because of the flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but I did. My father revealed that I'm the son of the living God. You didn't reveal it to yourself. You ain't even that smart. I had to show you that. And the fact that I showed you that, and now you're taking advantage of what I've shown you by questioning it, you got to be foolish. But watch what else Peter says. Watch what else Jesus says. He says, also I said to you that you, Peter, are upon this rock, I will build my church. Then Peter responds in his arrogance and starts thinking, because now I'm the rock you're going to build a church on. Then Jesus says, you went from my rock to a stumbling block. Hear me. Don't ever assume that God-given authority, leadership, or influence is there to stay. God knows your place, and if you ain't functioning as the rock, you can easily become a stumbling block. The crazy thing about Jesus is that he not going to stumble over you. He wasn't saying, you're st- I'm going to stumble over you. Are you not in my way? I know where I'm going, but you're going to cause others to stumble. 
When some of us decide that we're going to do the opposite of God and become the op, you are now the stumbling block to others knowing about the Messiah. So when you decide to live impurely, when you decide I'm going to do me, when you're at the same club dancing and drinking and getting drunk, they are going to look at you like, then what's the point of Jesus? So when people want to come to a, a beautiful Savior, all they can see is the op. And no offense, they can even walk in the church and still get the op. We gossip about them, slander about them, talk about their dress, talk about how they look, and we want people to come to this Savior? You were the stumbling block. You were supposed to be the rock, though. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, I pray even for myself that I will never assume that this title is here to stay. How many titles have we seen disappear this year from pastors? All because they got caught up into what God gave them as their, t- their stage and their influence, and they started thinking it was theirs in the first place. And now they're the biggest stumbling block to the growth of the church. Look at politics and look at pastors co-mingling and making it happen. And tell me this ain't real. That sooner or later, now the world's looking at us with politics saying, well, if y'all, are, if y'all mix like this, then why would I even go to church in the first place? Because they took their rock opportunity and they became a stumbling block to the world. Now look at American Christianity and tell me it ain't jacked. He says, you, you a stumbling block. So if I were to summarize that quickly, he calls him the op. He tells him where he belongs. And he tells him what he is. But then he tells him why. For you are not setting your mind on God's interest. Oh, cool. That means you are not, the word really means you're not taking the side of what God wants and desires in his plan. That you are not on the side of God's affairs and his circumstances. That for some reason, in your mental state, you have depended on your own wisdom to figure out the plan of God. How foolish are you, Peter? That some of us have thought that the human wisdom in which we have is now adequate to give God counsel. Therefore, we question God with the humanity of our wisdom. And God is like, the only wisdom you need is the wisdom that comes from me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and James as well, where he says, you ask for the wisdom of God. But some of us are depending on our human intellect to make decisions. Therefore, you're functioning on humanity, which is full of flesh and sin, to make decisions that are supposed to be godly and expect God to back your plan and then blame him for not backing it. And God's like, but you use human wisdom to make it. You said it felt good and it looked good and I have it. Last week we talked about the pleasures of man and how many of us make decisions based on our own pleasures. And then we say, God, bless my pleasure. And God's like, I can't. I can't bless your human wisdom. I can't bless the fact that you're not in my interest. You know, my biggest thing I pray for y'all is that some of y'all will start submitting to God's interest. Because when you do, oh, it's a beautiful plan. But let me conclude the story. Oh, this story gets beautiful. The same students that didn't read the syllabus came up to me. They're like, prof, man, you gave me ample time. You were right. It's, not, it's on me. I just let time slip away from me. Hey, man, can I just have an extra week after the final? Now, remember something. I'm going to be honest with you. 
if I give you extra time, people don't think like this, but it's okay, because that's what a student is. If I give you extra time, that's more time on me. Just if I'm honest. Because that means I'm supposed to be finished grading, my semester is supposed to be over, I move to my next class. But because you delayed your, now I have to continue grading while picking up more grading for the next class. On top of that, the two week, or even if I had a break, my wife and kids don't have me at night because you didn't want to turn on your stuff on time. But now that you see that you're failing, and you need to pass, you need the professor to take an extended time, or better yet, mercy, to change your grade because you didn't read the prompt in the first place. So the paper I told you I had to give you an F because you didn't write it correctly, I have to now regrade the paper now that you've decided to read the prompt. But that is who Jesus is. That Jesus knows Peter is misreading the prompt. And then Peter denies Jesus three times after cutting off the man's ear. And then Jesus does exactly what he said he's going to do. He's going to die. He's going to raise three days later. Then he gets the interaction with Peter. And then he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? I'm going to extend your time and give you back that rock of church I took away. Peter, I need you to go feed my flock. Because if I was Jesus after having an argument with you and you thinking you're going to pull me to the side, oh, your title's gone forever. You don't belong in my presence forever. But Jesus says, I died for situations like this. I shed blood for an opportunity like this. So what you think is non-restorable, what you think, hey, God can't fix, what you think you've questioned God and God doesn't have an answer for you yet, what you think you've said, God, you're not on my timeline, for those who have been the op for too long because of your sin patterns and your questioning of God, God is saying, hey, do you love me? Do you love me? Because if you do, the same purpose that you were denying I would do is now going to save you. The same thing you said I would never let it happen is now going to save you. So the same things that many of us question God about, guess what? That same grace you need to restore your life. So guess what, ladies and gentlemen? Do you love me? Then go do what I say. Do you love me? Then go do what I say. It's not too late. You think it's too late, but God's extending your deadline and say, rewrite your paper. Husbands, rewrite the paper. Wives, rewrite the paper. Singles, rewrite the paper. It is not too late. Now you can read the prompt, but you got to go study it for yourself. You got to start saying, God, I need your wisdom. You got to start saying, God, I can't do anything outside of you anymore. I want to make sure all of God's interests are in my mind at all times. And when you do, God is saying, you got an extra two weeks. But watch the kicker. You got an extra two weeks, even though it's going to cost me my life, my blood, and my resurrection. Let us pray.